Hello, and welcome back to another episode of Dua Lipa at Your Service, a podcast series in which I sit down with some of the world's most inspiring minds, including today's very special guest, Brandon Wolf, an activist, a survivor, and an advocate for change whose conversation with me is one of the most powerful you will hear all season. Before we begin, a listener wrote in and asked me something I thought was quite on theme with this week's episode. Here's a voice note from Santiago from Mexico City. Hi, Dua. I went to your show in Mexico City just a few days ago with my boyfriend and some of my best friends. During Cold Heart, I noticed you brought out the LGBTQ flag, which meant a lot to me, and I am sure it also meant a lot to other thousands of LGBTQ people that were at the concert at that moment. So I would like to know how you got involved and why is supporting the LGBTQ community so important to you? Thank you very much for being such an inspiration for LGBTQ youth. Santiago, thank you so much for sending that in. I mean, for me, LGBTQ rights are human rights. So supporting the community is something that really just comes naturally to me. The more we're able to normalize that messaging in a way that really feels easy and seamless, then I feel like the less we'll even need to stop and think about this. It's really part of the reason why I wanted to carve out space in the Service 95 newsletter and even in this podcast for marginalized voices, I feel incredibly lucky to have this platform. So for me, making time and space for guests like the incredible Brandon Wolf is the best way I know how to support the LGBTQ community. And I hope you'll see what I mean when you hear this week's episode, which will be with you after a very short break. My guest this week is gun safety and LGBTQ advocate Brandon Wolf. It's possible that you don't yet know his name, but the likelihood is that you'll know the broad strokes of his story. On the 12th of June, 2016, Brandon was at the Pulse nightclub in Orlando, Florida, with two of his best friends, Drew and Juan. That night, Omar Mateen, a 29-year-old known to the FBI, entered the club with legally acquired assault weapons and killed 49 people. Drew and Juan were struck down and killed on the club's dance floor. As that gunfire erupted, you could hear it from the outside. Oh my God, they're all shooting back and forth. Our officer uh, engaged in a gun battle with that suspect. Uh, the suspect at some point went back in inside the club where more shots were fired. Today marks the most deadly shooting in American history. This is an especially heartbreaking day for all of our friends our fellow Americans who are lesbian, gay, bisexual, or transgender. The shooter targeted a nightclub where people came together to be with friends, to dance and to sing, and to live. The place where they were attacked is more than a nightclub. It is a place of solidarity and empowerment where people have come together to raise awareness, to speak their minds, and to advocate for their civil rights. The shooter was apparently armed with a handgun and a powerful assault rifle. This massacre is therefore a further reminder of how easy it is for someone to get their hands on a weapon that lets them shoot people in a school or in a house of worship or a movie theater or in a nightclub. And we have to decide if that's the kind of country we want to be. And to actively do nothing is a decision as well. Since the massacre, Brandon has channeled his trauma, his grief, and his anger to remarkable effect. He says the catalyst for his activism was when he saw the reporting of the shooting on Fox News, 
In his own words, white, cisgender, heterosexual men were erasing parts of the story I felt mattered most. We were too gay and too brown. People didn't see their children in us. He knew he had to step up and ensure that victims' and survivors' voices remain central to any debate about gun control. Today, Brandon is a leading gun safety and LGBTQ rights advocate. He's press secretary for the LGBTQ organization Equality Florida, and he also sits on the board of directors for The Drew Project, an organization he founded in Drew's name. In 2019, he became the first Pulse survivor to testify before Congress. Thank you, Congresswoman. Uh, I want to thank you for inviting me to speak before you today. I have seen the power of hatred. It tore my world apart, stole my sense of joy, and still haunts me in my nightmares. That's why I can say with confidence that if you are not using everything at your disposal to snuff hatred out, then you are just not doing enough. I had the opportunity to speak with Brandon about surviving the Pulse Massacre, processing grief, advocating for gun safety, stemming the tide of the Republican Party's anti-LGBTQ crusade, and championing his beloved Orlando. I'm sure that his desire for change and his passion for his community will move you as it has me. There are some difficult topics in this episode, so I need to give you all a warning, because Brandon speaks about that tragic night in our conversation. If you believe that you'll find this discussion to be difficult to listen to, then perhaps skip this episode. With that said, please join me in welcoming this week's At Your Service guest, Brandon Wolf. How are you, Brandon? I'm doing well. How are you doing? I'm good, thank you. Are you in uh, Orlando at the moment? I am, yeah. I live in downtown Orlando, and the studio is just a little north of the city. Okay, cool. I, I heard about the hurricane. I hope everything's okay over there. Yeah, things are okay. Uh, my apartment was fine. There are parts of Orlando, unfortunately, that had some damage, but we didn't get it nearly as bad as South Florida, so we're lucky in that way. Okay. Brandon, there's so much that I want to ask you. You know, actually, one of my main motivations with starting this podcast and the newsletter Service 95 was really to spotlight amazing activists around the world and the causes they champion, you know, the things that they help make really accessible for all of us all around the world to kind of understand. And I know that the listeners are going to be really, really motivated and inspired by your story. So I'm really delighted to speak to you. So thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you so much. The world is in a, a pretty precarious place, mm. and I think it, it doesn't really matter where you are, but we're facing a lot of issues with climate change and, and rising wealth inequality and, and all the things that make life hard for people. So thank you for highlighting the important work that people are doing to help combat those things. Oh, absolutely. I mean, I, I really want to talk to you today about your work as a gun control and LGBTQ advocate. And you're one of the most respected voices on these issues in the US, particularly on how the two intersect. But this was not really the course that you had set for yourself. Everything kind of changed for you on the 12th of June 2016, when you and your dear friends Drew and Juan decided to go to the Pulse nightclub. Tragically, of the three of you, only you made it out there alive and Drew and Juan were killed alongside 47 other people in the most shocking mass shooting in US history. So so that listeners can understand just how deeply your activism is rooted in your personal experience, I wonder if you could take us through that night, sharing only what you feel comfortable with, of course. Sure. Um, and if you'll forgive me, I'd like to take you back a little bit further than that because... I think in order to understand the place that Pulse held in our community, and, and for me personally, it's important to understand where I came from before that. I grew up in a really, really small town on the West Coast of the United States, and 
for much of my life, I, I didn't want to be an advocate. I didn't want to be fighting for my community. I had no grand dreams of, of moments like this or conversations like these. I really just wanted to be normal. Mm. I was a queer kid of color growing up in a community that didn't look like me, that didn't live or love like me. And even the people I cared about the most would say things like, the world is never going to be ready for someone like you. You're going to have to find a way to assimilate, to belong, to, to squeeze yourself into the assigned boxes you've been given. And so for decades, I just you know ran around the country, ran around the world looking for a place where I could be all of myself. And I found that really here in Orlando. I found it in foods I'd never tried before, languages I'd never heard before. And I found it in chosen family. Drew and Juan were so special to me, not just because they were friends, but because they were brothers. I still to this day believe the first people who told me it's okay to love yourself exactly as you are, they're the first people who challenged me to be the very best version of myself. Um, they were never afraid to ask tough questions. They were always willing to pry a little further, but at the end of the day, they wanted you to know how proud they were of you just being you. And everything about my life on June 11th, the day before the shooting, was normal. It was the thing that I'd been told the world was never going to be ready to give someone like me, mm. and I had found it. And I felt like at that time, when you find something like that, your only job is to hold on to it. You just cling to it until, you know, you ride off into retirement, that you had stolen this little sliver of belonging from someone else. And I had no idea what that would become, you know, five or six years down the road. So in this community, we really often refer to June 11th of 2016 as the last normal day. And every bit of it was normal for me. I was, you know, folding socks and underwear on the couch. It was laundry day. Mm. I was watching reruns of Star Trek, The Next Generation on Netflix, because I'm kind of a nerd. And, you know, it's summer in Florida. So I spent some time by the pool. I fell asleep in a lounge chair. And when the sun went down, I just did the most normal thing. I texted my best friends and asked if they wanted to get a drink. They got to my apartment just before midnight. It was a little late for us. We listened to the same playlist we always listened to. We watched these weird 80s music videos that Drew loved so much that would get us in the mood to go out. I was almost never allowed to have control of the cocktail <laughs> shaker because I'd make drinks like two or three times as strong as they need to be. Uh, but for some reason, they let me make the drinks that night and they just made like horrible faces every time they took a sip. <laughs> um, and then when it came time to choose where to go, we just went somewhere we'd been hundreds of times before. Pulse Nightclub was a safe space for people like us. And I get that the term safe space, especially online, has become kind of a pejorative. It's like people use it as a weapon against someone. Oh, if you need a safe space, maybe you're not tough enough to handle the world as it is. But for people like us, for queer people of color, safe spaces are lifelines. Mm. They're the places we carve out for one another where we can go and be ourselves without fear of discrimination. So everything about Pulse was normal that night. The line was as long as it ever was. Scowling drag queen who always like snatched my $5 out of my hand angrily and she was there behind the desk that <laughs> night. The music was as loud as it ever was. We went to the same bartender we always went to. We ordered the same drinks we always ordered. And we had a spot out on the patio underneath the stars where we would go. And, and Drew, who had a master's degree in clinical psychology, after a sip or two, would give you a free therapy session, whether you really wanted it or not. And so that night, he gave us a free therapy session. And he talked about love. He talked about compassion. And when he was coming in for a landing on his point, he would drape a long arm over your shoulder. And he would, he would come in for a point And he said, you know what I, I wish we did more often is tell each other that we love each other. Wow. Um, that moment is so vivid for me because it's, it's the last conversation I ever got to have with my best friend. It was not long after that that 
The most normal night of our lives became the tragedy that everyone knows it to be today. I was washing my hands at a bathroom sink. I, I can remember this poster on the wall with the face of a drag queen I was familiar with, some promo for an upcoming show. I, I can remember a cup sitting on the edge of the sink, someone's empty drink like it was going to fall off. I can remember how cold the water was from the faucet. I remember the sound of gunshots, the smell of blood and gun smoke. I remember huddling against the wall with a group of strangers, debating whether we should run or hide. I remember the girl behind me trying so hard not to scream. She was shaking, and I could feel her vibrating against the floor underneath me. I remember this decision to make a break for it, locking arms with this dozen people I'd never met before and sprinting for the sliver of light in the back of the club, a door that I never knew existed. I I remember wishing I got a chance to say goodbye to my parents because I just knew that I was going to die in the safest space that I knew in my community. I remember one foot in front of the other just have to make it to the door. And I remember when the door flung open and we were standing in the center of the parking lot, there was this relentless gunfire behind us and people were screaming and running, but there was this sense of relief because I had done the impossible. I had, I had survived. And I remember just how fleeting that sense of relief was when you know, I, I realized that my best friends, Drew and Juan, the people who changed my life forever, who taught me that it's okay to love yourself exactly as you are, were exactly where they always were, standing in the center of the dance floor, wrapped in each other's arms, right in that man's line of fire. You know, the, the world knows our tragedy, that on June 12th of 2016, a man charged through the front doors of Pulse Nightclub wielding a Sig Sauer MCX, which is an assault rifle. He fired 110 rounds into the club. Um, 19 of them struck and killed Drew and Juan. And I think it was in that moment that I realized that my job is so much bigger than just holding on to that slice of normal that I'd found. Mm. My obligation is to honor my best friends, not just by you know, keeping their memories alive and telling their stories, but with action by fighting for a world I think that they would be proud of. Gosh, that's such a... Uh, first of all, thank you for sharing your experience. I can't imagine it's it's easy having to relive such a traumatic time, especially as it started as such a normal day and, and the loss of your friends. So I appreciate you sharing that and also the work that you do behind, you know, what has happened to you, such a traumatic event in your life. But, you know, I read that until six years ago, activism wasn't a part of your life and suddenly you're thrust into the limelight because of this extremely traumatic event and you're the guy, you're the one on the news, you're the one who has to take leadership and speak on behalf of survivors and try to be the one that somehow moves the needle to stop these things happening again. What was that moment like when you realised that it was you that had to step up to do this, that you would have to be the one to own this issue at the same time as dealing with your own trauma and also the loss of your friends? Well, there was a decision point for me, and it happened six days after the shooting. We had a funeral service for Drew, and I remember it, it's, you know, it's one of the hardest days of my life, of course. I was trying to write my eulogy in the car, and my hand was shaking so much I could barely get it to the paper. His mom asked me to be a pallbearer that day, and, and as I was helping to push his casket down the aisle, I found myself holding on to the side of it so tightly that my knuckles were turning white. And it's because I didn't want to let go of my best friend until I'd found the right words to say goodbye to him. And so we got to the front of this packed church, and I looked down at the casket, and I whispered a promise to him. I promised him that I would never stop fighting for a world that he would be proud mm. of. And 
I think it was in that moment that I made the decision that I was going to be courageous, that I was going to step outside of my comfort zone, that I was going to let go of the things that had held me back. I was going to face my imposter syndrome and just step into the role of telling their stories. I wanted the world to know Drew and Juan as I knew them. And I also wanted them to understand why Pulse mattered, not just because of the horrific loss of life and how shocking it was, but I wanted them to understand that when you invade a safe space like that for LGBTQ people, you invade all of them, Mm. that everyone around the world felt that trauma because they fought so hard for spaces like Pulse 2. And I think in that moment of making a promise to Drew, I challenged myself to live a life of, you know, not just fighting for one win or one headline or one moment, but truly living each and every single day to try to make the world better than yesterday, trying so hard to keep his legacy alive, which was, you know, a world where young people can just be themselves, where they don't have to be afraid to, you know, to identify how they identify, to use the pronouns that make the most sense for them. You know, that people, young people can just live, that they can thrive and that they have supporting environments to do that. That day in that church, looking at his casket, making that promise, I think that's when it it really hit me. That's when I made the decision to live the life that I live now. It must have been such a profound uh, realization in such a difficult circumstance. And the topics that you campaign on are incredibly intense. Are you able to balance your activism and your drive for change with taking care of your mental health? Like, I wonder what trauma counseling services were available to you in the aftermath of the shooting and what was what was it like to navigate that system? Yeah, well, thank you for calling that out because I feel like taking care of ourselves is, you know, if not half, maybe a majority of the work that we do because let's face it, we live in a system that tells us we are only as valuable as what we can produce, right? That no matter how hard we're working, no matter what we're putting into the world, that we have to do more. We have to work harder. We have to produce mm-hmm. more. And in that system, declaring that you have value, that your well-being matters, that your mental health matters, that's an active protest. It's an active resistance. And the whole point of fighting for a world that's better tomorrow than it is today is so that more of us can enjoy it, so we can take more time to be with the people we love and, and enjoy the things in our communities that we enjoy. And so Yes, trauma-informed care really helped me in the aftermath. I have a great therapist. I'm happy to hear that. I encourage everyone, please access the mental health care resources you need. I'm also an advocate for making sure those mental health care resources are accessible to everyone. Obviously, we could probably do a whole other episode about the health care system in America, but we'll save that for next time. I agree with you. Um, I think we got to save that for another episode. (laughs) (laughs) We do, but... You know, I think a big portion, not just, you know, mental health resources and therapy, a big part of taking care of myself has meant leaning on people around me and being honest about the support that I need. You know, people in the immediate aftermath of the tragedy, they always say things like, are you taking care of yourself? Mm. But reminding me that I'm not taking care of myself is actually not very helpful. It it just stresses me out. So there was a day where I, I got tired of it and a colleague said to me, are you making sure to take care of yourself? And I I challenged him and I said, are you offering to take something off my plate? Because that's what I really need. Mm. I need help balancing this workload. And and so for me, you know, over the last six and a half years, I've just gotten more comfortable asking for help, accessing mental health care resources and understanding that, as Audre Lorde said, self-care is not selfish, it's self-preservation. And that in itself is an act of warfare, political warfare. I believe that to my core, that taking care of ourselves is a huge part of this work and taking care of one another 
is another big part of it too. Mm, it's so interesting you say that because it is very true. I think sometimes we find it extremely hard to ask for help. We try and prove that we're extremely capable of just taking care of ourselves and things could be so much easier if you just ask for a bit of help and you're also there for other people to lean on you at the same time. But I think we have to do a lot more of that as an act of service also to ourselves towards, you know, like you said, self-love is, is incredibly important. We'll be back with Brandon Wolf right after this break. Each time I hear about a mass shooting, I think this has got to be a, this is the tipping point. 49 people killed at Pulse. 10 black people killed in a supermarket by a white supremacist. 50 people killed at a music event. Dozens of children killed in schools. And so it goes on. The US is absolutely off the charts compared to the rest of the world. And each time I think this is the event that's going to change everything and it doesn't. Like, Will it ever? It's a great question. And I know what people are looking for, especially around the world. You're looking for the headline, right? The New York Times front page says, this is it. A sweeping suite of gun safety legislation and we're banning assault weapons and high capacity magazines nationally. We're taking really bold steps to address gun violence. And the unfortunate truth is that we're not there yet. Tomorrow is not the day where we're going to get that New York Times headline. Mm. But that doesn't mean that progress isn't being made. And so I want to reassure people that we are actually making progress. We haven't stopped the mass shootings. We haven't ended gun violence in the country. But we've done a lot of work to change public perception. For decades, if not centuries, the gun lobby and people who stand to make a lot of money from everyone owning an assault rifle, they held this country captive. They had all the control in the world. And it seemed like they were unstoppable, right? That no matter what happened, we couldn't do anything to combat them. And that has really changed in the last, I would say, four to five years. Think about the response to Pulse. We didn't see any gun safety legislation passed in Florida. We didn't see any gun safety legislation passed on a national level. Members of Congress tried. And at the same time, it was a presidential election year between Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump. And people were telling Secretary Clinton that, You know, you can't run on gun safety. You can't run on banning assault weapons or you'll lose in this country. Uh, And that Mm -hmm. really marked our politics at the time. But just two years later, when the shooting at Parkland happened, so much was already different. As a result, we passed the first gun safety laws in Florida in over two decades. And that was with Republicans in control of everything. We saw huge mobilizations in Washington, D.C. We saw gun safety advocates spending more money in the midterm elections than the NRA and the gun lobby. We saw 40, over 40 NRA-backed candidates for Congress lose their elections. And that has only grown in the years since. In 2020, you know, Joe Biden felt comfortable running for president on arguably the most progressive gun safety platform we've seen in our lifetimes. And that's because of the work we've been doing. It's because of you know, the work we've done to knock doors and make phone calls and send text Mm -hmm. messages and inform our neighbors about what's happening. And unfortunately, it's also the result of so many communities being touched by gun violence, so many people having buried their children, so many people having had their worlds turned upside down. All of that has had a cumulative effect to where we are really seeing progress. So I would urge people to be realistic. We're not going to solve gun violence tomorrow. I wish that were true. (laughs) 
But I also want people to be optimistic and hopeful that we really are making progress. And I believe that if we keep at it, if we keep hammering, if we keep having conversations like this one, we really can solve the, the epidemic of gun violence in this country. What does your ideal gun control legislation look like? Like what's permissible within the boundaries of the Constitution, you know, that could actually make it through to the Supreme Court? Well, let's talk about what's popular. We know what the American people want, Mm -hmm. right? Number one, they want someone to address our Swiss cheese approach to background checks. It doesn't make any sense that my dad, who owns firearms, had to go through a background check process, but our neighbor could buy a gun from their second cousin with cash and not go through that same background check process. So 98% of the country agrees that we've got to do something about background checks. We should start there. A vast majority of the country also agrees that we should impose a national extreme risk protection order, which basically means that if someone is immediately a danger to themselves or others, that you can go to a court and say, we need to just get those firearms out of the home temporarily while we figure out what the situation is and get this person to a place where they're no longer a danger to themselves or people around them. That's widely popular. It's possible under the Second Amendment because We have states like Florida that have already passed those things. And yes, I'd love to see us ban assault weapons and high-capacity magazines in this country. Those weapons are designed to kill as many people as possible, as quickly as possible, and they simply don't belong on our streets. I don't want to have to go to the grocery store and worry that I'm going to be looking down the muzzle of an assault rifle on one aisle over from the produce. That doesn't make any sense in a civilized country. We can get those guns off the street. And then, you know, we can have a bigger conversation about what safety really looks like. Are we going to be a country that invests in people? Are we going to be a country that demonstrates care for the well-being of people? Are we going to address the fact that people can't get access to mental health resources? Are we going to address the fact that we have a country that criminalizes poverty and homelessness? Are we going to address the fact that we drive people to places of despair and then wonder why they resort to violence to address their problems? I think all of those things are possible, but we have to start by asking ourselves why we continue to obsess over giving people easy access to deadly weapons. Brendan, how soon were you able to go back to queer spaces again after the shooting? What has that return to any kind of normality been like for you? And how has it been for the wider LGBTQ community in Orlando? Like, have you been able to return to a place of joy as a community you know, I'll say I, I went to the club the next day, and for me it was because it was an act of resistance. Mm-hmm. And I think a lot about the LGBTQ civil rights movement over time. I think about Stonewall Uprising. I think about the fight against HIV and AIDS. I think about, you know, the fight for marriage equality and non-discrimination protections. And that has always been marked by this resilience, right, by this rejection of hatred and bigotry. It's always been marked by people proudly and loudly declaring that they deserve to be treated with dignity and respect. And so in many ways, I felt like re-entering queer spaces immediately after the shooting was not only me finding my safe space again, but it was also me reclaiming that safe space and saying that one man filled with hatred, armed with a weapon of war, was not going to steal that from me, that I had fought too hard and for too long to have a space where I could hold hands with someone I had a crush on without looking over my shoulder first, where I could wear my skinniest pair of jeans without being afraid of what someone would call Mm. me. Like I had fought so hard for those things we as a community had that we were not going to let someone steal that from us. And I feel like that has come to embody the spirit of Orlando afterward. 
our community, I say this all the time, but it feels like Orlando came out on June 12th of 2016. It was on that day that rainbows appeared all over town that, you know, crosswalks became rainbow and buildings were painted in rainbow. To this day, there are still rainbow LED lights that show up all over downtown once the sun goes down. Orlando decided in that moment that instead of being defined by hate or bigotry, that we were going to be defined by our inclusivity, that we were going to be defined by, you know, being a not just a safe bar or a safe school, but a safe community for people to exist in. Maybe it's just part of who we are. Maybe LGBTQ people in our DNA have no choice but to be defiant. But I feel like Pulse has created a defiant streak here in Orlando, and it certainly brought mine out when I stepped back into those safe queer spaces. Mm, The act of resilience and standing in your power shows to hold a lot of truth, and it's incredibly important. And, And of course, guns are just one way to attack the gay community. And it's, from my perspective, what's been really terrifying to see is you have a governor in Florida, Ron DeSantis, who is looking to be the Republican presidential candidate and is enacting laws and policies that explicitly attack homosexuality. Legislation such as the Don't Say Gay law, which restricts what schools can teach about sexual orientation and gender identity, and it particularly targets transgender students. It seems to be part of a wider, like a revival of anti-LGBTQ sentiment from Republicans. And it's such a world away from 2015, when the White House was lit up in rainbow colors and marriage equality became law. How do you confront adversary like that, especially like within the act of resistance, I guess? Yeah. I mean, I feel like resistance is the only option, Mm. right? It's a really scary time to be an LGBTQ person in Florida. I'm not going to lie. You know, if you look at like social media and you you watch us fighting back, sometimes you can you can lose the humanity of just how terrifying it is, especially for queer kids in the state right now when they have, you know, the most powerful person in our state, the governor of the third largest state in the United States, um, targeting them day in and day out. And so the question of, you know, how do you resist it? Well, you know, first of all, we fight on a policy level, right? So I work full-time as the press secretary at our state's LGBTQ civil rights organization, Equality Florida, and our primary function is to ensure that we're fighting back against these things. We show up every time there's a hearing in the state capitol. We show up every time there's a moment locally, whether it's school boards or local governments, to try to fight back on a policy level and tell people in our community that there are people fighting for them. And you know, believe it or not, while the governor seems to have a lot of power, there is still a strong resistance among local governments and activists and community organizers on the ground who who believe that a better version of Florida is possible, that it doesn't just have to be Ron DeSantis running for president for the next few years, uh, terrorizing everyone along the way, that we get a say in that, too, because this is a democracy. This is our state. Mm. We fight on a policy level. And honestly, I think the other really critical component of it is that we share our stories unapologetically. Part of the strategy that DeSantis and his allies employ is baked in this assumption that people don't know what it's like to be LGBTQ, right? If you can dehumanize transgender and non-binary people, if you can turn them from a community that has humanity into an ism, a, a shadowy, scary ideology then you can justify doing anything to them. You can justify discrimination. You can justify violence. And that is what most of this strategy is baked in. They're assuming that people don't know a trans or non-binary person. And so they can make up stories out of whole cloth 
about what it means to be transgender in this country. And that means it's on us. It's our job. It's our responsibility to tell their stories, not just when they're in moments of crisis, not just when their backs are against the wall, but to tell the full, rich beauty of their lives. Tell the story of you know, the trans kid who's you know, graduating with honors. Tell the story of the trans small business owner who did hurricane cleanup and the doors are now open and they're serving customers again. Trans people, non-binary people, LGBTQ people in general are not some shadowy ism. We're not an ideology. We are your neighbors. We're your family members. We're your mm-hmm. friends. We're part of the community. And when we tell those stories, when we help people understand that what we're talking about is not some faraway ideology, it's the people who live next door to you, it becomes easier to combat this this agenda of dehumanization against the community. Absolutely. Brandon, would you ever consider entering politics and going toe-to-toe on these issues? Because it, it strikes me that you're, you're very good at it. Oh, thank you. I... You know, I'm honored to have really good representation here in Orlando, and so I feel grateful that I, I get to help elect champions and re-elect champions, but never say never. Hmm. You never know. I actually had the civil rights activist Brian Stevenson on the show recently, which was a really, really inspiring conversation, as I'm sure you can imagine. And he said that hopelessness is the enemy of justice and our hope is our superpower. Yeah. And I was wondering what brings you hope? Well, I I love that. I have my own sort of take on that that I try to share with people. I think that apathy is an ally to the status quo. I think despair is the thing that saps us of our possibility, of our imagination. And so hope is all I've got, right? Hope is what I've run on for the last six and a half years. When everything I loved about the world was stolen from me, I had to find some hope. And I found it in young people. I found it in the next generation of powerful leaders who are already changing the world. A couple weeks after the shooting, we were back in Drew's apartment. His landlord let us have access to it for about a month or two because his space, aside from our bars and our clubs, Drew's apartment was our safe space. It Mm -hmm. was the place where we congregated. It was, you know, I had my spot at the kitchen island next to, you know, next to the bottle of vodka so I didn't have to be too far away. Uh, (laughs) And so we got back into that space a couple weeks after the shooting, and we started talking about what it would look like to create a legacy for him. We asked ourselves, you know, what, what would we want people to remember about Drew? And it became very obvious that we wanted people to feel that same sense of belonging that he provided to all of us. And so we launched the Drew Project, which is a, another nonprofit organization. I still sit on the board of that organization. And our goal was really very simple. It was about empowering young people, especially queer young people, to be themselves, and then giving them the resources to go off and take over the world. In the last six and a half years, we've given over $125,000 in college scholarships. We call them the Spirit of Drew Awards, of course. We've given over $5,000 to Gay Straight Alliance student clubs. We authored the country's most comprehensive guidebook to help those student clubs find meaning when they're meeting together. And all of it was, again, sort of driven by this idea that we wanted young people to have everything they need to know that they're perfect exactly as they are and to go out and change the world. And and let me tell you, not only does it bring me great joy to be able to help them access what they need to go out and achieve their wildest dreams, but watching them thrive, it just, it fills me with hope that we can create a different kind of world, that tomorrow doesn't have to look the same as it does today. I think about you know, the student activists who led walkouts from school during the Don't Say Gay Bill fight, and they amassed by the thousands all the way from Key West to Pensacola, 
because they just wanted a school environment that treats them with dignity and respect. I think about students from Parkland who led millions of people across the country to challenge our broken system and demand, you know, gun safety legislation that makes sense. Those young people give me hope every single day when I'm wondering why it is I'm smashing my head against the Mm -hmm. wall trying to fight this out of control radical governor every single day. I I look at the young people who who feel empowered, who feel emboldened by our fight, who believe that we can do better than we are doing today. and, And they give me a lot of hope. It's incredible. And and all the hard work that you do doesn't go unnoticed. It's very remarkable. Also, the work with the Drew Project as well. And what an incredible way to keep somebody's legacy alive. It's really incredible the work you're doing. Thank you. I appreciate it. So I thank you on on behalf of so many for the service that you've done and the selfless act of fighting for, for truly what you believe in every day for the betterment of other people. We'll be back with Brandon Wolf right after this break. I'm so happy to have had you on the show today and I like to end my conversations by asking for a couple lists from my guests and you know you spoke about Orlando being a place that you found your chosen family and your community and a place that you truly felt accepted and you you found who you truly were and I I would love to know five places that define your Orlando. I had to think a lot about this because I love Orlando so much. I love just everything about the community we've created, but I did narrow it down to five. So the first is an area we call the Milk District. I know that's weird. I get it. There's a long story there, but (laughs) the Milk District is actually where I live. It's a part of downtown. And so I think the Milk District is number one on my list, not only because it's my home today and I feel at home there. It's also where a lot of our LGBTQ bars and clubs are. And it's actually the same neighborhood I lived in across the hall from Drew and Juan. And so it, it has a lot of meaning for me. I have found a lot of belonging here in the Milk District. The second one is the center. That's not going to surprise folks. The LGBTQ center has done so much for our community. It's done so much for people especially in the wake of the shooting at Pulse, the center became that hub that we all needed in that moment. It became the place that resources were amassed. Um, And they continue to do really important work in the community. Number three is, again, we talked about what gives me hope. Young people give me hope. And there's an organization called the Zebra Coalition. And their primary focus is on addressing youth homelessness, especially in the LGBTQ community. And so they provide temporary housing. They provide meals. They provide you know, access to educational resources. And so the Zebra Coalition, for me, embodies so much of that hopeful spirit of Orlando. It, it embodies so much of what I love about what we've been able to create. The Zebra Coalition's definitely on there. This one, I, ha- I have to give a shout out to some food, right? There has to be food on here. So I chose this restaurant called Mamak, which is a, an, a pan-Asian street food place. It's in the Mills 50 area of downtown. And What I love about the restaurant, first of all, is that it was one of Drew and I's favorite restaurants. And so, of course, there's like some nostalgic element to it. But I also love that it's like in the center of this sort of cultural district. People may not know, but Orlando has a really big Vietnamese population. And so much of their businesses and their livelihood is congregated on the Mills 50 area. And so right there on that strip, you have my favorite, Ma Mok. You have 
you know, some like Korean fried chicken, you have Vietnamese pho, and you have a Cuban restaurant. It's like everything about the diversity of Orlando in one little block. And, and Mamak for me is the center of that. And then the last place is the steps of City Hall, because that is so often where we gather for rallies, for protests, to celebrate with one another. And so much of my advocacy journey has been marked by standing on the steps of City Hall underneath the Progress Pride flag and demanding that the rest of our state, that the rest of our country choose the path that Orlando chose in 2016, which is one of love, it's one of compassion, it's one of seeing each other's similarities before we see what's different about each other. And so the steps of City Hall for me are just so symbolic and and such a huge part of my journey. Thank you so much for that. And Lastly, I would love to have your five LGBTQ activists that you would like to spotlight. Absolutely. And I had to do some thinking on this, too, because there are so many incredible people. And I wish I could shout them all out. But I did, I did settle on five that I think are really important right now. The first is, is a woman named Hope Giselle. She's a black trans woman, and I've had the opportunity to partner alongside her in a number of ways. Most recently, we helped to host a part of the New York City Pride Festival together And what I've learned from Hope is, you know, so much about being introspective, not just about gender identity and about being a part of the LGBTQ community, but about the intersections of those identities with race. And she's written some incredible books about, you know, again, this relationship between being a a black person and, and being a transgender woman. And I find her to be incredibly remarkable. I love that she challenges things. She's not afraid to shake the table a little bit. And so Hope Giselle, I want to give a shout out to her. The second person on my list is actually one of the first people that I met while doing this work. Her name is Blair Amani. She is a bisexual Muslim woman. And the first time that I had an opportunity to meet her was at the GLAAD Media Awards. And Blair and I had an opportunity to do a moment together on stage. Tucker Carlson on Fox News had recently attacked both of us each in our own separate ways. And so we did a moment to call out, you know, right-wing extremism in the media. My favorite part was that Blair went totally off script and started raising money in Tucker Carlson's name, which was a beautiful thing. So Tucker's name started popping up on the screen with lots of people donating in his name. Blair Armani is, she uses her social media platforms incredibly to educate people. She has a series called Smarter in Seconds. She's a historian. She's an author. She's incredible in this work. Have to shout her out. The third person is a student organizer. Their name is Will Larkins. They go to school here in Orlando, and they're, you know, one of the faces of the movement to fight back against Don't Say Gay in the last year. They helped to lead a walkout at Winter Park High School that had, I think, over a thousand students at it from all different walks of life. And what I'm inspired most by is that Will, this, you know, I think 17-year-old kid who, again, never had grand dreams of being an activist or an advocate in the community, has really stepped up and inspires a lot of other young people, is doing incredible work. So I have to shout out Will. I also have to shout out another young person by the name of Olivia Juliana. So if folks do not know Olivia Juliana, she has a huge audience on TikTok and uh, recently had a viral moment when Congressman Matt Gates from the north of Florida, folks may be familiar with him, decided to body shame her on Twitter over her views on abortion She subsequently started a fund to help raise money for abortion services, and she raised over $2 million after being body shamed by Matt Gates on Twitter. So shout out to Olivia Juliana. She is an incredible inspiration to so many, not afraid to take on the big dogs in Congress. 
I know that she has a bright future ahead of her. And finally, this one is is also personal for me. I'd love to shout out Adri Perez, who is currently the organizing director at the Texas Freedom Network. They're a trans person in Texas and, in my mind, have been at the center of the work to protect trans children in that state as the governor has absolutely terrorized them, you know, threatening to to put parents in prison for caring for their trans young person. And so I have to shout out Adri for the work that they do. We were in a fellowship together and I'm just, I'm inspired each and every single day by their passion, by their strength, by their resolve, even in the face of hatred and bigotry, they are working every day to make Texas a little more safe for trans kids. Brendan, thank you so much. Thank you for your time and for your generosity and for sharing your story and for all the work that you do. It's truly remarkable and you're very inspiring. So thank you for taking the time to to talk to me today. And I wish you all the luck with all the work that you're doing. It, it, it feels thank very you. inspiring to see that we're one step closer to getting to a future that we really want to envision for, I guess, the youth. So thank you so much. Yeah, thank you. And you're right. I think you know, while it feels like there are a lot of setbacks right now, that there's a lot of backlash, I am most inspired by the fact that the next generation sees the world differently. They see it bigger. They see it more diverse. They see it more beautiful mm. when we work together. And so thank you for having these conversations and for inspiring your audience, many of whom are those young people who are changing the world, to stay the course, to stay inspired and, and to go out and, and fight together. Brandon, thank you so much. I really, really appreciate it. Oh my gosh, I appreciate you and your whole team. Thanks for including me in this. Thank you all for tuning in. I know this week's episode was a challenging listen, but I also know I walked away from my conversation with Brandon, feeling a renewed sense of optimism about America's future and the future of gun control more largely. If you ask me, that man might even be president someday. As always, you can find one of Brandon's lists compiling his favorite young LGBTQIA plus activists he hopes you'll pay attention to in this week's issue of Service 95, our free newsletter available to subscribers via service95.com. Be sure to sign up and let us know in our Instagram comments which activists or causes you'd like us to spotlight next. And please keep writing in with the lists you would like me to read aloud during next week's episode. Email us at podcast at service95.com. We read all your messages and can't wait to see what you come up with. Sending you all my love and I'll see you next week for another very special episode of Dua Lipa at your service. <laughs> <laughs>